This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, once again, you've got the DLR Cast, the only podcast by and for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. As always, I'm Steve, along with my good friend Darren Paltrowitz. Darren, it has been a while, but in truth, we haven't had too much to talk about, although we've got a great interview coming up on the other side of our little intro here. Yes, an interview with Stephen Rosen, who, if you've been following Blabbermouth and all the classic rock news sites, you've been knowing to keep an eye out for his book about Eddie Van Halen, which is, as hey, the other books have been great, but this is the most comprehensive Eddie book, I think, ever. Yeah, it's 580 pages. It's a massive tome. Let's be thankful that he did not find a publisher, and he goes into this because he self-published this, which is a labor of love and labor unto itself. Yeah. But there's no way a publisher is going to put out 580 pages of you know, 59.99 book without trying to charge $80 for it and, or even put out a book that, that size. And it's, he's a remarkable guy, 50 year career writing in the music business uh, writing, writing about music, I should say. And uh, for virtually everybody, just one, we get into it right from the very beginning. I, I, I couldn't believe it that I never knew this, but uh, well, most people didn't know he had to go back and retrace his steps, but he met, Eddie at a he was at they were both at a show by my all-time favorite band of all time next to Van Halen Cheap Trick so we get into all that much more and it was really fun talking to Steve Rosen everything's in the show notes where you can order it all the details the book's called Tone Chaser Understanding My 26 Year Journey with Edward Van Halen yeah that is all correct he generously gave us almost an hour so it's a long chat if anyone's listening to this and going goes, hey, I read the book. Why didn't you ask him about X, Y, and Z? Hey, maybe we'll have him back for a part two if he's kind enough to accommodate. But the bottom line is, this is the rare guest that we've had that really knew Eddie. We've had people on who knew Dave really well, not a lot of people who knew Eddie really well. So a little bit of a format change on the DLR cast, and I, I think you'll appreciate that if you're a Van Halen diehard like Steve and myself. Exactly. And, and then uh, elsewhere in the in the DLR, uh, let's let's do the really quick recap. Um, I mean, there was, there was a show. Oh, this was something. One of our listeners texted me, "Hey, Dave booked a show at the Bob Hope Theater in California," and I went, "What? What?" I texted <laughs> somebody I know in his organization. I went, "You're playing that show?" And he goes, "We are. Let me check." And then he texts me a couple minutes later. He goes, "No, we're not." So somebody leaked a fake tour date. <laughs> A couple of uh, for a couple of months from now, so that is not happening. Dave is not appearing at the Bob Hope Theater unless it's a private corporate gig. Given uh, you just remind me, as uh, given all the brouhaha and the drama with Elon Musk uh, uh, collapsing Twitter as we speak, is there any fake Dave accounts out there? Like we've seen fake accounts for everything else. I mean, there's <laughs> fake. Oh, fake there are, yeah, but. But fake, fake blue checkmark accounts or whatever the hell. I can't keep up with all, what's going on there. Looked yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone down that wormhole yet. I mean, that, but, that's Dave item number one. Dave item number two is Ramses Rios uh, animated another great video for Dave. Mojo, Mojo Dojo. Dojo, yeah. Um, which leads me to suspect that he is under one of the Dave non-disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's not been on the DLR. Cast. Well, keep doing great stuff. 
Um, all has been quiet on the Western Front, although Dave was in the news a little bit. There's a cool interview at the Van Halen News Desk with Jesse Harms, where he talks about yeah. uh, playing with Dave for a short short moment and then never talking to Dave again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that um early into the DLR cast we had on Jesse, and something that was interesting to me is some of the things that he revealed in this interview. He told me off the record after we started chatting. So I think Jesse just kind of hit that point of going, what? What are they going to do to me at this point in time? I'm, I'm done with all this Van Halen stuff. And, you know, Jesse had a career before, during, and after Van Halen and Sam. Yeah. And all that. So he's moved on in a good way. Absolutely. So, yeah, that made some headlines. And then Sammy, we can go on to the next episode. He's accidentally giving us a lot of quotes in some of these interviews. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael's been quiet, right? Alex has been quiet. Wolfgang's making his album, but he's been pretty quiet. I mean, all's quiet on the Western Front, I guess. Uh, is the, the trickle of Van Halen cover tunes Dave was putting out seemingly has... Last one came what nearly four weeks ago after a, a few yeah. and and uh, I for one am not sitting there going give us more I yeah. as as listeners know I'd much rather hear some new music or or you know written by Dave music put it that way or something beyond covering Van Halen tunes but it, it has become official since our last episode that John Five is in the Motley Crew fold whether he's you know a hired gun salaried guy or actually in the band is. We're, it's we're waiting to see that but yeah I, that, I think he'll be doing the european version of the stadium tour that goes overseas next year with def leppard exactly so the hopes of him coming back for roth are kind of uh not gonna happen but we still don't know if that album might surface in some fashion we just have to hurry up and wait with all things dave is he going to come back for another re uh, vegas residency more recordings more van halen re-records we have no idea. So thankfully, this great interview that we have with Steve Rosen is actually new information and interesting stuff. Yeah. Van Halen landscape. Let's get to it. Yes. Thank you, Steve, for talking to Steve. Uh, <laughs> Steve Rosen, Steve Roth. There, there's, there's two S-Rows on the line here. So <laughs> D-Lo <laughs> and s <-row. laughs> Well, the bottom line is this uh, great interview. Pleasure speaking with him. I think you asked more appropriate questions and uh, hopefully there's a part. <laughs> I'm, I, I, you were a little bit off your game, Darren. You did not ask about, uh, <laughs> he did, it was primarily all an Eddie interview. So you can be forgiven and not ask about, um, you know, eat him and smile in Spanish. Yeah. So Risa Salvaje, every now and then it gets left out of an interview. I did ask, I think I asked Chris Jericho about Sarisa Salvaje a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and, you know, he described Eat Him and Smile to me in a way that I've never heard it said before. Are you ready? Oh, I got him. He hit me. He said, it is the best party prog rock album ever. Wow. You know what? Or did he say prog rock party album? Either way, he said them the same sentence. You got a Zappa alum on guitar, co-wrote every song on the record, but but Tobacco Road and That's Life. Yeah. Um, stylistically, there's some weird turns in there with like Bump and Grind and some of the other songs on side two. So 
that's kind of apt, man. That is really cool. I can't disagree with that. Yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Well, I'm all out of thoughts. Are you all out of thoughts? I was going to say, find that and so many others on the Patrocast. There, seemingly, there's uh, new interviews coming virtually every other day. The hardest working man. 1-800-SEE-A-BABY. Is that what you have to say? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, is that Phil and not on your shirt? People can't see this, but oh, yeah. I am just catching uh, the the... I'm just catching the pegs of a Fender uh, bass guitar there and a, and, a, and a curly mop of hair. So the man, that's, I am a big thin Lizzie fan. So Join God bless club. you. Join the club. Well, thanks for listening. If you've made it this far, <laughs> take care. You know, leading into this Steve R two, although I'm going to designate you number one, Steve R in my heart, Steve Rosen, you started as a rock journalist in 1973. That is correct. That is correct. Okay. Who was the first interview that you did back then? Because your credits are amazing. Michael Jackson, of course, Eddie and Dave from Van Halen. Everyone that anyone listening to this loves, you spoke with them at some point. Well, just about, man. You know, that's an interesting question. The first person I interviewed. Um, uh, out of high school, I went to England with a buddy, and we did the hitchhiking around Europe thing, you know, backpacking, you know, young and dumb. And uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was amazing fun. Um, I had previously written for this little, it was like a softcore porno newspaper called the LA Star. You know, used to buy, uh, you know, you put in like a quarter, like on the little vending machine, you know, and you pull it out and you grab your thing. Uh, really, I mean, it wasn't like hardcore, hardcore. It was like mainly uh, uh, for like the massage ads at the back, you know. And they had a tiny little music section. So I was sending my stuff out to everybody. And, you know, I was getting rejected. It's like, okay. And then I, I, I get a copy of the LA Star uh, in the mail. I'm going, why do I, why am I getting this? And I looked and the guy had ran a review. It was just a live review. I think, I, actually, I think the first review I ever did, uh, I think it was T-Rex uh, wow. at the Hollywood Palladium. To make a long story short, this guy, Mark Yandel, the music editor, somehow he had these connections in England. He says, hey, man, you're going over there. Here's some names. You know, go call these people. Maybe you can do some interviews or whatever. Send them back to us. You'd be like our correspondent for, for the two or three months I was over there. So he had the name of, of, of the publicist for Joe Cocker, Max Clifford. The very first interview I did was with Joe Cocker. And... Um, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, I was, I was terrified out of my mind. I was a monster Joe Cocker fan and I'm sitting across the table from him, you know, I'd actually brought my cheap little cassette player with me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from home in hopes of doing some stuff, you know, so I got my, you know, $3 microphone out there on my $4 cassette player and I'm holding it, you know, and we talked and, and, and he was great. And I actually did a couple other interviews while I was over there. Uh, uh, a band called Smith Perkins Smith, um, General Giant. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, uh, I met this guy, Tony Brainsby. Tony did publicity for a band called Queen. So <laughs> he says, hey, man, you want to interview this band Queen? We just signed them. Their first record's not even out yet, man. We're going to have all four guys here. You want to interview them? I go, Queen? I go, no, nah, man, they're probably like a glitter band. <laughs> why do I want to interview the four guys from Queen? So that was a mistake. However, he also handled, he was doing publicity for Wings. Uh, Wings were doing like their little um, 
university tour. They'd pull up to a university. Nobody knew who they were, you know, uh, you know, Bob Smith and the Argonauts, and they'd walk in and people say Paul McCartney. So one of the first interviews I also ever did was with Paul McCartney. It was with a bunch of other writers. And I, I mean, I, I may have asked one question, but I was in the same room with him. However, the point I'm trying to make is, so I had brought one cassette with me. So after I did the Joe Cocker interview, what do you do? Well, come on, man, your career's not going to last that long. You record over it. So I don't have that Cocker interview. I don't have the General Giant interview. Thank God I've got the McCartney interview. But yeah, the first interview I ever did did was with uh, Joe Cocker. It's pretty unbelievable. Um, You know, it it was just a different world. I mean, these all these managers. I mean, I I was nobody, but they were willing to you know help me out. I I actually also became a uh, a correspondent for Sounds. Mm -hmm. It was like Sounds NME and Melody Maker and. They said, yeah, just send us stuff or we'll print it. So, I mean, you know, it, it was just unbelievable. I mean, some of those doors opened pretty quickly. Some took a while. But, uh, yeah, recording over a Joe Cocker interview. Yeah, that was a good one I'll never live down, you know. Oh, God. Uh, Steve R. Uh, Steve R. too. Um <laughs> You looked like you were about to say something. There. I was, I was gonna, I was gonna say, yeah, your career, um, just your credits and who, who, who you have written for is just a who's who of a uh, music and rock journalism. But I want to get into the book and fast forward a few years. And as we mentioned, Darren and I mentioned in our intro at the top, the book is called Tone Chase, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen by Stephen Rosen. The book is massive. We're talking 500 and some odd, 580 pages. It's about as thorough as you can possibly get. If you're curious to know what Eddie's hands look like, this book will tell you. (laughs) The very first thing that jumped out at me, Steve, though, which I did not know, and as somebody who has been uh, has been a fan for so so long i am kicking myself you met edward when you went to go see and saw edward at the whiskey uh, and saw edward at the whiskey a go-go seeing my all-time favorite band oh, of wow. all time cheap trick which wow. i cannot fucking believe i did not know this and i am going to go to bed tonight angry at myself with my fiance <laughs> wondering what are you so angry about and i'm just gonna all two three hours from now i'm gonna lose my shit again over this but <laughs> Not to go chapter by chapter, but I that's let's just start from there. How you met Eddie and started this amazing 26 year journey. Well, you know, man, that uh, honestly, that 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 that's a very cool story. Um, uh, uh, so this is 1977. I've been writing for about four years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on, you know, most of the of the record labels, you know, and management companies knew me, and I was getting invites. And, you know, back there in the day, I mean, I mean, the whiskey would have, you know, three or four bands a week. I mean, uh, unbelievable bands uh, uh, playing. Although in 77, um, which actually ties into the story, uh, you know, it was sort of the height of uh, kind of the punk thing. You know, I was never a punk guy at all. Um, I, I just, it just didn't, it just didn't do much for me. Um, so... So I was getting I was getting invites to the whiskey a lot, um, and uh, I, I get this invite. Um, Cheap Trick is recording a live record, and I love Cheap Trick, like you, yeah. great band. Um, this is obviously before the Budokan thing and before they really kind of hit hit monster. Um, but um, I thought, yeah, yeah, you know, 
going to the whiskey to see Cheap Trick record a live record that that's that's worth checking out. And in the book, I write, um, you know, what if I hadn't gone that night? And I really think about that a lot. You know, would our paths have crossed somewhere else down the road? Um, I mean, in a romantic way, I, I suppose you want to say, no, we never would have met. But I think the reality is somewhere along the line, I probably would have interviewed Van Halen. Mm-hmm. Would it have been the same thing interviewing him, uh, you know, never having met him. And I'm, now I'm a writer on the other side of the, of the telephone line. I mean, who can say? But the, yeah, so I'm there that night, uh, you know, to see Cheap Trick. And uh, a very good friend of mine, Michelle Meyer, uh, who passed away regrettably um, uh, several years ago. Um, uh, I'm standing downstairs with my brother. My brother, you know, came along. And we're standing downstairs waiting for Cheap Trick to come on. And I get this tap on the shoulder. And it's Michelle. And we hug. And I love her. I was in a band at the time. And Michelle used to used to, to book my band. She used to like, uh, she booked the whiskey. She yeah. also booked uh, like Madame Wong's East and West, which were pretty hip clubs back then. I mean, some really good bands were playing there. And Saida, not never having heard us, you know, she would book me into those clubs, you know. So, I mean, I would have done anything for her. So she taps on her shoulder. She says, there's somebody you have to meet at the guitar player upstairs. He's Godhead, you know. And, and, and again, I describe this in the book, and I remember it so clearly. For Michelle to use the, the, the term Godhead, I mean, this, this guy was more than human. This was somebody off the charts. Um, you, you know, this is somebody I had to meet. So I walk upstairs with my brother, and we go up into one of the dressing rooms. And, you know, the dressing rooms up there are kind of like, they're dungeons. I mean, they're dirty, and there's cigarettes on the floor, and there's empty beer cups, and, you know, there's graffiti and stuff on the walls. I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're putrid. But, uh, you know, so I walk in the, you know, and, and there's a guy in the corner and he's smoking, you know, I look over at him. And I and and to be honest, I mean, I may have recognized him. And the strange thing here, and I know I'm taking some shortcuts here, some detours. I had never seen Van Halen play. I didn't know this this guy, Edward Van Halen. Um, I had heard of him. And like I said, I think I may have recognized him, but I'm not sure. But I had no idea how he played. I didn't know. Uh, what the band sounded like, what he played like. Um, That's what um, I wanted to bring up because at that point they're huge in the they're huge down there. But just by chance, well, of the dozens of bands you had seen, you just yeah. had not come across their path at that point. Yeah, and I don't, I, 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 you know, I tried to think how could that have possibly happened, and 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 I think I I I, I give a couple reasons. One, like I said, I wasn't a punk guy, so if I'd got invited to a show. If somehow a punk band had a record deal um, and, you know, it was going to see the germs with Van Halen, I, I wouldn't have gone. I mean, because, I mean, I, I wouldn't have wanted to have seen the germs and I didn't really know who Van Halen was. So how I missed them, I don't know. Now, remember, this is before they uh, their record came out. They were signed, um, yeah. but they were still playing the whiskey. So, I mean, I probably wouldn't have received an invite from Warners anyway. That wouldn't have happened until after the record was out. So, you know, it just could have been one of those things where I, I just I just was not at the whiskey and the Starwood, my God, I was there like a second home all the time. Um, so I'm upstairs. I, I see this guy, you know, uh, hi, you know, Michelle, um, Eddie Van Halen, Steve Rosen, Steve Rosen, Eddie Van Halen, Godhead, you know. And we talked, you know, and, and it, it was just one of those things. And you know, I, I don't want it to sound mystical or spiritual, but 
you know, there's some people you instantly feel comfortable with. You think, I have a lot in common with this person. I, I, I could, I'd like to hang out with this guy again, you know. Um, and, and that's what it was. It was just this great comfort thing, you know, and, and he was comfortable. And um, like I say in the book, you know, at the end of it, he gives me his phone number, which I never called, you know, because I couldn't bring myself to call him. Once I realized who he was and what he played like, um, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to call. Hey, yeah, there's Steve Rosen, man. Let's go hang out, man. Let's have a cup of coffee. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just couldn't bring myself to do that. So Steve, that was a special night. And and I just want to say one more thing, Stephen. You say, yeah, you know, Cheap Trip was one of your favorite bands. It took me, honestly, man, I will bet you it took me, I want to say months and months and months to remember the night that I did meet Edward. So I'm listening to my cassettes and I'm working as for my cassettes as, as source material. So I'm listening to the cassettes and some of them are, are labeled and some of them are the mark, you know. So I'm trying to piece things together chronologically. And I am, I'm looking through, uh, the whiskey has this amazing timeline. You can go onto the whiskey and you can see every band that played going back to like, Johnny Rivers in 64, whatever it was. So I'm looking, I'm looking to see Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick. And I had an idea what year it was. And there's no Cheap Trick dates. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going backwards. I was just looking through. I wasn't looking for Cheap Trick because I didn't know Cheap Trick. I was just looking for dates in like in 77. I knew it was before the record came out in yeah. February 78. So I'm thinking mid to late 77 to early 78. So I'm trying to look at the shows to see what show could I conceivably have gone to where I might have seen them. And again, man, all those shows are all those punk bands, the Zippers and the Germs and um, uh, Venus and the Razor Blades. And, and I wouldn't have been at those shows. I just would not have gone. And I probably wouldn't have been invited because none of those bands had labels. You know, I wasn't going to go not to be an elitist, I wasn't going to go six, pay six bucks to go see the germs. You know, I was going to, you know, even, even if the record label gave me a, a tab, I wouldn't have gone. So, man, honestly, for months and months, I had to leave that intro thing. I didn't, you know, I, I, I did not know. So I'm listening to inter interviews in one unlabeled interview. I somehow said to Edward, I go, Edward, man, can, can you believe, man, that we met at the whiskey that night that Cheap Trick was there? I go, oh, my God, there it is. You know, and then I look back and I look, I think maybe I looked on a Cheap Trick website and I saw that it was, and I don't have the date in front of me, uh, June or July. You know, they, they did two nights there. Um, so, yeah, man, in answer to your question, uh, yeah, it took me a long time to figure that, out, that one out. I was so happy when I did because it's I thought. I, I have to know the starting point, you know? I have to know ground zero. I have to know day one. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty happy when I uh, it, when I unearthed that one. It's crazy because those whiskey shows are actually are legendary in Cheap Trick lore. And I'm pretty sure either, I, I know they've been bootlegged and recorded and Epic put yeah. some things out. But having said that, you mentioned that you had to go back through all your tapes. I mean, you were your own archivist your own researcher yeah. here. And there's a great picture in the book of, and one of those old, and I'm old enough to remember these things, the, the old fashioned uh, tape uh, case. 
and you've got a potpourri of uh, of <laughs> tapes that I used to have Scotch and Maxell and Memorix and TDK in there, and it's like it's like looking at mixtapes the past. And what I want to get at is that this started not just a personal friendship, but you interviewed him numerous times, published interviews, correct for guitar magazines and rock magazines and local rags there. Yeah, absolutely, many many times. And um, I mean, I'm trying to think. You know, interviews, because I mean, you know, I was writing for a Japanese magazine as I write in the book. Actually, the first interview I ever did with him appeared in a magazine called Player. Um, uh, uh, That's one of the Burn publications or the Shinko Music publications. I know uh, it was Richard Music. The oh. other. All right. Yeah, it was the other. It was the other. The other big one. Yeah. Player was a little bit more. Um, um, I mean, Burn was like all that metal stuff. Um Player was a little more, um, not sedate, but it, it wasn't quite as, you know, manic as as, as Vern, which is a great magazine. Um, yeah. You know, the, they dealt with more with players maybe than personalities. No, Vern obviously had a bunch of amazing players. But yeah, I had been a, a correspondent for, for Player from about 75, right after I started writing for Guitar Player. Um, uh, I actually started sending guitar player stories to player and guitar player said, you can't do that. We own those stories. Well, somehow I got around it, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. But anyway, um, so yeah. So I mean, for magazines, I mean, there were, uh, I was writing for some German magazines. Um, uh, I think there might've been, I think there were some French magazines in there. might've been some Italian magazines, um, Swedish magazines. So I, yeah, I mean, interviews, I don't know, man, maybe a, a dozen or 15 interviews. Um, I actually get a fair amount for, for Guitar World, you know, the three that most people probably know, the cover stores. But then there was like, you know, you know, kind of bigger features inside various, various stuff, you know, in his studio and uh, various things. Um, so, yeah, so there were a fair amount of interviews, you, you know. And, and, and I talk about this in the book also, you know. When I had to sit there and I was the interviewer and he was the interviewee and was for a guitar world story, you know, and there was a new record coming out or, I mean, I, I knew what guitar world readers wanted to read about, you know, and, and it was just guitars and it was that type of thing. Right. Um, and beyond that, but beyond that, it was, you know, and, and it, I suppose it became sort of a, uh, an, an, an innate thing. I, I never thought about it, but sort of, you know, moving from that thing of, of sort of being this friend with this guy and talking and then, you know, interviewing him. So it's like, you you know, it's like you're interviewing your friend, even though you've had these conversations before. And, yeah, you, you know, at, at points it was a little weird. I don't think Ed, Edward ever felt that way. He, he was he was really cool about it. But that was always a little weird. And but I think I think what came out of that and people have said this and I hope it's what happened is that people got a sense of, of that connection that relationship, you know, and it came out in the interviews and there was this closeness thing that, that, that came out, you know, this comfort factor on, on his part, you know, I, I hope that came through that, that, that's what I, that's what I hope, you know, people w w were reading, um, you know, when they were reading my interviews and stuff. So. I have a yeah. stupid question that's not connected to any of that, but yeah. if somebody's going to know this, it's going to be you. Okay. I'm a big fan of people who make it later in life 
you know, you have you have your people who make it when they're 22, and then you have your people like Rodney Dangerfield who don't make it until they already look like a senior citizen. And yeah. One of the great later in life success stories is John Taffer from Bar Rescue. And John Taffer, from what he said, was managing the Troubadour and the Van Halen guys were around a lot. And I believe that was the late 70s, early 80s. Was John Taffer around your scene in that era? I, I don't know him, Darren. Uh, I don't know that name. Uh, I was at the Troubadour a lot. I mean, you know, conceivably, I, I, I saw him, met him. Um, but I, 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 I don't know him. So he Sorry. didn't throw you out of that bar. Okay, cool. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, exactly. I, I mentioned that because obviously when Eddie passed and you started this book before Eddie passed, which I want to find out yeah. a little bit more about with the timeline, but once that happened, certain people were always going to people for quotes and you saw a trillion quotes from Stephen Piercy because he, yeah knew those guys a lot. You saw a lot of Chris Holmes quotes, et cetera. And John Taffer, every now and then, somebody would ask him about Van Halen. He'd said, oh man, the stories that I can't tell you guys, oh, they're amazing. Maybe they'll come out in a book one day. And you don't know if that's real or yeah. not. But yeah. did I read correctly? You started the book about six weeks before Eddie passed and it took you until about October, 2021 to finish it. It was like a year and a month or two. Uh, that is exactly right, and and yeah, and and you know, you know, I guess which was kind of begs the question, why why begin the book seventeen years later? Well, I don't have an answer. I I, I mean, I I knew to be to be completely honest, I, I I really in the back of my mind, I I I kind of knew I knew there was a book there. I wanted to write a book, but I never think thought I would. Um, I, I really never thought I, I, I would write it. It would just be one of those things that, that just never happened. Mm -hmm. um, in answer to the question, why then? You know, if I tell this story, it, it's going to sound like I'm a, you know, a crystal sniffing, you know, herbal no. tea drinking nut job. Because anybody who would say it, that's what I would think. I mean, I, I knew that I knew that Edward was sick. I mean, I didn't know how sick. I mean, we all knew that he, that he was sick. And earlier, and, and I could actually look, and I also printed in the book, um, um, because I lost total contact with him after 2003, I never spoke to him again, never saw him again. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, years and years and years went by, and I just thought to myself, for my own, for my own peace of mind, I go, I have to, I have to try and reach out to him. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I, I doubt whether he'll ever get back to me. I, I, I seriously don't think that will ever happen. But I just have to know that I tried. So I think I sent about three emails, and I know I, I, I sent one around Christmas time, and I, I, I didn't keep two of them. I kept the one. Um, uh, you know, hi Edward. You know, happy holidays, man. I hope you're well. Uh, you know, and I know that I sent one around his birthday. Hey, man, happy birthday. And this other one, I don't have it in front of me. I, I can't even remember when mm -hmm. I sent it. Um, but it was kind of one of those last effort things. Hey, man, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wrote the lines. You know, I said, hey, man, neither of us are getting younger. 
Um, you know, Ed was two years younger than I was. Um, you know, uh, I miss you. You know, I, I miss our friendship. You know, I just hope you're happy and well. And um, so that, that went out into the ether. And, and then I guess just a little while after that, I guess I was just thinking about it. I was thinking about him, you know, thinking about a book. You know, there were some people who kept saying, man, you got to write the book, man, you got to write the book, you know. And by them saying that, it, it almost felt like I really don't want to write it. You know, it's like too much pressure. What if I write a, a book that nobody reads? I, I mean, I really thought about those things. Um, so getting back to the, my original point. So, yeah, in August, and, I, and, and again, I only remember this because... Of, of the day it was, August 24th, I thought, okay, I'm going to begin the book on my birthday. And uh, August 24th, 2020, I began writing the book. Mm-hmm. And this is where the weird part comes. I, I you know, as I'm writing it, it, you know, it's not like I was visited. It wasn't an epiphany. It wasn't religious. It was nothing like that. It was just a sense that, you know, I, you know, I know that Edward had gone some through some hard times right after I stopped seeing him and yeah. you know, kind of knew he was sick, didn't know how sick he was. I, I just thought that there's some, something's going to happen. You know, I, I didn't know what it was, you know, maybe he was going to call me and, and say, Hey, let's be friends. I didn't know. And then, you know, so I start the book and, and then, yeah, it was about six weeks later. Was it October? Uh, I don't have the date or something, eighth or 10th, somewhere around eighth or 10th or sixth or something. Yeah, you know, um, actually a friend called and said, hey, did you hear about Edward, you know? And I go, what? He goes, yeah, he passed away. And, uh, you know, for a minute, I mean, uh, you know, I didn't know what to think. And, yeah, you know, the, the first inclination, I know a lot of people heard that. I know that they were absolutely broken up horribly by that. When I heard it, I was just kind of numb. Um, and it wasn't until I return to the book and have these thoughts. Do I write the book now? Do I continue the book? You know, and the more I got into it, you know, and I, you know, all those moments and hearing them talk and I thought, Oh God, you know, I, I mean, look, I don't want to, I don't want it to sound like it wasn't a horrible moment, but it just didn't kind of hit me immediately like that. So, yeah. So I did start the book, um, you know, before he passed away. Um, yeah, you know, uh, and, and, and I think, well, what if Edward, what if I had started, what if he had passed, you, you know, would I have started the book after that? You know, that, that's such a hard question. Part of me thinks, I, I would like to think that I would have still done the book because I, I, I think that, you know, I think, you know, I had some things that deserved to be said, but then I thought, my God, in his memory, do I not write the book? Anyway, so yeah, that was a story of, uh, the birth of Tone Chaser, yeah. And it's done and it's out and people can yeah. easily order it online. And seeing how many pages it is, understandably it took more than a year to do. Did you know outright that you wanted to self-publish? Because let's face it, a major publisher would have gone, hey, it's gotta be 80,000 words or else we won't run it. You know, one of those yeah. situations. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Darren. My first instinct was, a publisher is going to see this book. Oh my God, this guy spent all that time with Van Halen and there's these other books out there and, and those books are fantastic books. And, and, you know, 
um, if I may be so bold. Uh, you know, we look on the back here, and, and Paul Brannigan, who's a, uh, he's such a sickly good writer, you know, English guy, and the Brad Tulinski and Chris Gill, their book, they yeah. both, you know, so kindly gave me, gave me, uh, um, you know, comments and, 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 and put me in their book. Um, I mean, the books are, are fabulous. They're entirely different books than mine. Um, but, but I thought, you know, a publisher or, or, or an, an agent or a publisher would go, wow, my God, what a unique thing. You know, yeah, no one's been friends with him. We got to go, go check this out, man. I reached out to maybe 10 agents. I didn't even get a response. Um, one publisher, uh, Omnibus, Omnibus, uh, who, who put out these amazing uh, English publisher, these incredible uh, English books, which I love. I, I love them. Um, he had gotten back to me. I uh, said, wow, man, we really liked your book. It was this close to being published. Um, uh, uh, two other publishers said, said exactly what you said, Jaren. Who's going to publish a book like this? That's, that's way too long. And who cares about your story, man? Cut all that stuff out. We don't care about you. Right. It's like, wow. So I was a little <laughs> bummed. I'll be honest with you. Um, well, I, I'm laughing because that's stuff that I've dealt with for uh, the forthcoming book I have about David Lee Roth, where people, where they don't necessarily care about the quality of the work. They just go, what's the word count? <laughs> And that's what they're the, the bottom line that they're kind of focused on. And you have such a personal connection to the sub subject that I can't imagine how hard it would have been to have to make cuts like that because it's your story. Yeah, man, it would have been really hard. And congratulations on David Lee Roth book. I want to read that, man. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, that was exactly it. You know, had they read it or had they read a chapter or, you know, it's like, oh, the writing's not, it's like, oh, that would have hurt, but at least that was something I could, I could swallow, you know? So mm -hmm. I, 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 I was bummed. So um, I called my good friend, Niels Lozauer, the oh, iconic wow. rock Van Halen photographer. I've known Neil, honestly, I've known him since 74. Uh, my first cover in, in, in uh, guitar, for Guitar Player Magazine was a Jeff Beck story. Jeff Beck cover, Neil shot that cover. I didn't know him at the time. Uh, we've remained friends over the years. He provided the, the front and back covers uh, for me and the inside cover where Ed's sitting down. I mean, just, I mean, no one comes close to him when it comes to Van Halen uh, photos um, or anybody else for that matter. He's one of the greatest rock photographers of all time in my estimation. Um, so I talked to, you know, I called Neil, I was a little bummed. I figured, well, you know, Neil, Neil had done some photo books. He, he dealt with some heavy publishers. I thought Neil might have some connections, you know, uh, for some publishers. And so I call him, hey, Neil, you know, I'm working on the book, you know, um, um, or, or maybe the book had been done by that time. Um, you know, I'm looking for some publishers. And anybody who knows Neil know that he's loud, he's obnoxious, he's offensive, he's insulting. And uh, I, I, I love the guy. He's, he's yeah. great. He's never changed a day. If he loves you, he loves you. Even when he's complimenting you, he insults you. So... You know, it's like, what the, what the fuck are you going to get a publisher for? They're not going to pay any advance. Do it yourself. Why, what, are you fucking out of your mind? You're a great writer. Why would you fucking do that? <laughs> so I thought, okay. Okay, publishers, agents. So yeah, man, so I went and did it. And 
yeah, you know, you know, I'm at 300 pages and I'm not, I'm, I'm not halfway done and I'm at 400 pages. And I'm thinking, oh my God, at this point it's like, hey, it's my book. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to tell them, my, I'm going to tell you my story. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm going to tell you about my, you know, uh, dysfunctional girlfriends and, you know, uh, getting kicked off the magazines and, you know, you can either dig that stuff or not, you know, to my mind, it, it, you know, it, it was part of the story. You know, it's the backstory. If you know about the writer, you know, you, you can understand the relationship better. So, yeah, man. Yeah. All those things you said were true. Not that not, not one person read it and said, oh, well, except except the omnibus guy, you know, and, and he read it and he, he said it was close. And had he had they published it? Yeah, there was no way they're going to publish a 580 page book. So, yeah, probably half of it would have had to go. And, you know, I probably would have had to have given up editing rights. I mean, who knows? You know, I can I can tell you as someone who works for a book publisher. One, I regret we never connected on it. But two, it would have been for it would have been for naught because the companies I work with would have went 580 pages, get it down to 340. And <laughs> there'd be it would have, the whole process would have driven you nuts. And uh, the advance would would not even be worth your uh would not even be worth the time to try to recoup and then to put those huge efforts in. And, and uh, it, the result is this, it's everything you wanted the book to be, which would yeah. not have been the case had you gone with the, the traditional publishing route. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So it's like, you know, live or die by your own sword. And um, uh, yeah, it's the book I wanted to write. And, and judging by the comments I've received so far, um, you know, I, I wrote a book that, that, you know, that really resonated with people. And mm -hmm. I know some of the people that read this, well, I think a lot of them were hardcore Van Halen fans and they read those other books and they read articles on Edward and they listened to the records and, and, you know, they, they, they wanted something, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I think they found it in the book. I mean, you know, I, I mean, honestly, not a single person has written and said, "Wow, man, I'm I'm disappointed," or "This <laughs> right. is what this isn't what I was expecting," or oh, "Or I really, you know, I, I thought it would be this," which and and that would have those would have been fair comments, you know. I mean, on the other side of that, what I I hoped it wouldn't happen, but what I thought happened was that you know, you writing a book about David Lee Roth, obviously you must be a David Lee Roth fan, you must love Dave. Um, it started out as a loving Dave thing. And then- Yeah, yeah. And, and you are, you are I, on the DLR cast after all. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, it's not that I hated Dave's singing. I, I just wasn't a fan. But I mean, I understood, I understood that connection, that thing that they had, you know, that, that Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend yeah. thing, you, you know, that, that, you know, banging heads against each other. Um, so I thought people were going to say, fuck you. I love David Lee Roth. It wouldn't be anything, you know, and especially with Mike and, and you know, what my instinct was, God, don't print that stuff, you know, because, you know, the relationship that I had with Mike, such as it was, uh, again, we weren't like good friends. I only ever saw Mike, you know, a dozen times, you know, if he was up at 5150 or saw him in the NAM show, there was that picture and, you know, I see him at shows and rehearsals. And, um, but he was great. I mean, he sat down and gave me of his time. 
And Mike, if you're watching, if you hear of it, man, I, I hope you've read the book and understood it because I really tried to balance that. I mean, if you read, you know, what Edward also said, I mean, he loved Dave and Mike. I mean, he loved them. I mean, um, uh, you know, um, um, I mean, I think he, he really loved them. He, he loved having them in the band and, and playing with them. Um, I just think that there were moments when they would do things or, or not do things or disrespect him. And I talked about that, which was a huge thing with Edward or not work as hard as he would. And no one was going to do that, but he just felt that they weren't, you know, kind of carrying their load. And that's what, that's what ultimately, uh, you, you know, upset him. So, um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the book. You know, it's strange. It's like, I, I look back at that person who wrote that book, that Steve Rosen guy, um, and, and I go, how did he write that? And I don't mean to say that that it was this extraordinary book, but just uh, just the length of it and, mm -hmm. and you know, kind of the minutiae of it. It's like, I, I can't remember doing that stuff. It's like, how did I, how did I do that? You know, <laughs> why didn't I, why didn't I not just let go of it? It would have been so much easier, but. I'm glad I did, you know, honestly, doing shows like this and being recognized, man, uh, from the day I started writing, I thought if one person reads my stuff and I'm sitting on their coffee table or I'm in some magazine, I, I, I couldn't conceive of that. I, you know, to touch somebody like that, you know, to have a little piece of you in somebody's life, to me, that was the greatest. And I still I still believe that. So, yeah. So so uh, with Dave, that's very interesting that you didn't love his voice, that you were more of an Eddie guy to begin with. Yeah. But I know that you interviewed Dave, I think the first time was around 1980. Did you have run-ins with Dave over the years? <laughs> no, actually, that was a good question. Yeah, Dave uh, was 1980, uh, Women and Children First. I believe it's Steve. That was nice. I think that was yeah. Eighty wasn't fair warning. Eighty one or right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah eighty sounds about right. Um, and 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 the interview uh, with Dave. And this is before I was. Uh, is before I had spoken to Edward about doing that. You know that original book. Um, so yeah. So Dave was doing a day of interviews at the, their office on Sunset Boulevard, and I was there. And um, anybody, yeah, who's read that interview, um, you know, Dave was Dave and he was totally polite, you know, cordial. And, and you know, he was just being Dave. And, um, you know, certainly I would bring up Edward and he had nothing but amazing things to say about Edward. Um, but no, I never had a run in with Dave. Um, again, it's not that I encountered him that many more times. Again, you know, they used to have those big rehearsals before a tour and I, I went to a couple of those I would see him there I probably saw him backstage once or twice um so that was about it but it was no it was never like oh well shit you know why do you hang out with that all the time I was never anything like that and then I, I write famously in there about you know talking to Dave after he left and um you know he was putting together the band with uh uh, uh Steve and Billy and, uh, you know, Edward kind of wanted to know what he said and stuff. Um, and, you know, Dave was cool. I mean, I, 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 you know, by that time, I mean, I was a little, I was probably a little angry with Dave. Uh, you know, just, just from what Edward had said, just the way he had left and, 
you know, I know there was two sides to that story. And, um, you know, Dave saying, yeah, well, I have nothing but, you know, mad respect for Edward or whatever he said. And I go, no, you don't, Dave. And if you do, you certainly don't show it. So, um, yeah, but no, I never had any, there's never any bad feelings at all. Um, well, to piggyback on where I'm going with all that is the more people I speak with about Dave, I'm going to say 75% of the stories go, yeah, go, yeah, I, I hung out with Dave. Uh, do you want me to tell you a story? And you go, yeah. And they go, well, I was at Crazy Girls one night, and that's every damn story. It doesn't matter if it's Billy Corgan. Everyone saw Dave at Crazy Girls all the time. And being an L.A. guy, I didn't know if just de facto you were at Crazy Girls for record release parties. and There was Dave in the back room. No, that's funny. Actually, I, would, actually, I must have said that. Must admit, that would have been a fun hang. I mean, uh, certainly if David called me, I would have been there. But no, I never did that. That's funny. Uh, uh, Steve Roth, do you have a question that's not nonsensical? <laughs> you need to bring the class back. Well, up. I, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but mm. um, and certainly kind of, but I'm real curious to know how and not to get to the, I guess, when your friendship stopped them. But I mean, did you see an evolution? Did you kind of were you surprised? Did you see kind of, was it a pulling away? I mean, listen, there's a million reasons why friendships can fall apart. And certainly if it, it's heightened by when you're, I'm sure when you're a journalist and you're talking to a guy who's, you know, been picked apart and interviewed and, and been the focus of so much press. But I mean, did you kind of sense things changing as the years went on closer to when you ultimately, I guess, stopped communicating with him in 2003? Without trying to give it all away. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you, you know, but in answer to your question, yes. Edward started changing years before 2003. And I try to write about it in the book and try to understand why. Um, uh, one person posited the notion um, that Valerie had been whispering in his ear about me. And, and, and I, th I thought that th there's no way, you know, uh, again, there's that great chapter in there, Scrabble Babble for anybody that's read it and hasn't read it, you know, um, every time I saw Valerie, it was very friendly and cordial. And I, I, I think she understood that, that, you know, uh, you know, I would have done anything for Edward that I was his friend. I didn't want anything. I wasn't going to hurt him. Wasn't going to lie to him. And I think she understood all that. And, and again, I write, you know, um, she wanted me to write the book back in 1985. Um, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, I was going to write Edward's uh, um, authorized biography in 1985. That book never happened. Uh, but Valerie, Valerie understood that, you know, coming from, uh, you know, where she came from, you know, TV and, film I mean she understood you know legacy and, and that kind of thing and, and she wanted me to do the book um we should mention uh, we should mention too looking back I mean when I look at that time frame and again don't want to give away too much of the book or really you know it, it's but what I'm getting at is that those early aughts were not the best time for Eddie from a physical or emotional or mental standpoint from what everybody can see outside of here. I mean, you know, the that horrible reunion tour with Sammy, we all saw him on stage and it was just like, oh, my God, this guy, he's I mean, 
fans who fans know what basically most of uh, fans know a lot of it probably don't know all of it but you were probably living and seeing a lot of that in real time too yeah yeah and maybe yeah. that has something to do with it i don't know but it it affects every part of your life including friendships right yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah so yeah so yeah right right, right after i stopped our friend our relationship friendship ended yeah 2003 2004 Yes, when Ed went off the rails and we see those pictures of him, which is horrific. Um, uh, but but the truth is, Edward, it was it was even before then. Um, it was probably mid to late '90s. Edward started changing, and it, I, I don't think it. You know, people say, "Ah, oh, he was drinking heavily, drugs." Man, it, it wasn't that because these moments I saw him, he was he seemed to be pretty sober. He just. It was like a switch went off, man, and it, 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 he, he just grew more distant, uh, which was horrible. It was like it, it was like he was developing some sort of amnesia for me, around me, or, or this dementia, and he wasn't, didn't have dementia. I don't want that to sound like that. But, but this thing that, that, that all the memories that we, all these things that we had done, it, it's like as if they never happened. And it, it was horrible. And then ultimately in 2003, when it blew, when it blew up, it, it was like that, that, that really shocked me. I, I, I had no idea that that was coming. Um, I, I, the pressure on him must've been just completely immense in that time period, right? You've got the biggest band on the planet at, for a long time with declining sales, Sammy leaves, Gary Sharon comes in. The record's not well received. I mean, at the time, Eddie thought it was going to be the greatest thing since Sgt. Pepper. I mean, um, there's a little hyperbole there, but people, you got to remember. I mean, I can remember those interviews. He he was so proud of that record, and and it just basically laid an egg. You had uh, a reunion with Dave that wasn't, you know, the pressure. I'm sure, you know, he's a dad. He's struggling to be a husband. I mean. Yeah. That time period from like, say, about 95 to, to there's a 10 year period there from about 95 yeah. to 2005 that I think objectively you can go. That probably was the toughest time period in his life, I bet. Not, uh, not yeah. the last few, the last few years before he died and struggling, you know, physically, notwithstanding, yeah. he certainly seemed to be a guy, at least outwardly, publicly, that was really at peace, say, the last yeah. 15 you know years of his life or so so i mean it, it you were you were there you you saw this and when you mentioned that kind of like friendship dementia sort of thing it could have been just that pressure and people coming at him from all sides um and just i can only imagine what i can barely imagine what that must have been like but but i have a dumb question i have to take yeah. this off the rail <laughs> and this is one of those things that how often do you speak to people who knew Eddie closely? Not very often. Did Eddie Van Halen play drums on Van Halen 3? Do you know that answer? <laughs> uh, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I, I seriously doubt it. I, I, I mean, would he have, you know, done that to Al or was Al incapable of it? Playing? I can't imagine. There was the, mean, on the, the entire album? Really? Well, there was the rumor that Al was sort of out to launch on that album and that it was really an Eddie solo album. And the reason that he was so bummed about it failing was this is the first time that he really took the reins 
on a Van Halen album where he chose the producer, he led the way, and he wound up playing most of the instruments on it. And that's what maybe led to his downfall a bit on the personal level. Yeah, I, my personal opinion, I, I think, I think, no. I think okay. that's, that's insane. You know, did he play all, all the bass and guitars and, you know, uh, keyboards, everything else? Absolutely. Um, oh, so he did yeah. play bass on a lot of the stuff. Yeah, oh yeah, he did. I knew that he played bass on those 2004 songs from the Best of Both Worlds comp, but that's always been a thing that people have gone back and forth on. Like, did he really replace the bass on the albums or not? And well, I'm not quoting you like you're the author, author, uh, author, I can't speak today, authoritative source, but you believe that he did play bass on some of the Van Halen albums? Oh, absolutely. There's some of those, there's some of those bass parts. Again, no offense to Mike or Mike's fans. I don't think Mike could have played those parts. Um, I just, you know, um, you know, Ed, Ed famously in the book, you know, talks about, you know, showing Mike, you know, was there a fair one in one of the songs with the harmonics, you know, and Mike couldn't figure that stuff out, you know, um, you know, yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think Mike could have played some of those parts. And if he did, then I was totally wrong, Mike. You're you're an amazing bass player, and uh, I got it all wrong. I don't think I am, though. Um, yeah, there are there are uh, current interviews of Sammy Hagar where he's saying that Mike is playing b bass better than he ever has before, and uh, that's reading between the lines. There, that would not be conflicting to what you were saying. But apologies for that detour. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Steve Roth, um, where, what did I take you away from? We were talking about the fallout of the friendship and the surrounding things, but that how Eddie found peace in the last 10 to 15 years of his life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much that was kind of the end of that point there, I think. But when you look at that time period, I mean, it would not surprise me at all if, if a slew of other people found their friendships completely ebb around the same times yours did right, right? around that same general right, time period, right. because no, I, just of everything that was going on in the poor yeah. guy's life at that time i mean i think people tend to forget that in yeah. you know kind of that well-deserved memorial sort of glow right i mean because truly he was at a place in his life and so proud of his son and you know remarried and i, I hate to traffic in rumors or try to do the the tmz national Enquirer a bit but I, there was a really good reason, I think, several good reasons why he just stayed. You know, there was no, it was what, maybe one interview, maybe two interviews uh, with him for a different, when a different kind of truth came out. And I think the best thing yeah. he probably did was just stay away from the scrum, so to speak, those last few years, especially with the Dave reunion, all that pressure, and just get up on stage and play or play in the studio, you know? And, but that was something that he never could do the rest of the time in his entire career it was always interviews demands on his times in fighting with the band fighting at home i mean you know all those pressures on top of the fact you are the world's greatest guitarist and the first thing out of your mouth is when is so and so going to reform <laughs> you know but yeah. out of any most people's mouths so the pressure must have been immense is what i'm getting at and i'm sure there could have been other friendships that went the way yours unfortunately did with him around that time right 
Right. And, and, and I think there were. I don't know specifically, but but I, I, I'm pretty certain that happened. Um, and I understand all those reasons. Also, isn't it 2000 when he's diagnosed with cancer? So, I mean, you know, that's on his mind. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I guess it, you know, it went away or, or he had it taken care of. But, but you know, <laughs> once it's there, it's, uh, you know, so that was on his mind. Yeah. And the band and, and, and the marriage. I, I completely understood all of that. I, I, I guess what's weird is, so you, 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 you know, I don't know, you know, and, and maybe I, I, I'm thinking too much of, of our friendship and, and what it was, but it's like, so, so you ended with, with, I think he surrounded himself with the wrong people. I think that his management, uh, I was, I'm, I'm, again, I don't know them. I didn't know them, but I was around them. And look, I, you know, they were, the, they were a huge band. I, I, I get that they were protecting him, but I don't know. Um, they just seem to be pulling him. So um, it could have been management talking to him about, his, just, hey, you're friends with that Steve Rosen, that writer, you know. Um, uh, somebody had, had, had mentioned that. I thought, no, that's, that's not impossible. Um, but yeah, I, I, under, I understood those pressures he had. I understood all, the, all that. I guess what I didn't understand is why he would have ended our friendship and to the, the way that it ended. Right. And I don't want to give that away. Uh, you know, that's the part that was like, I guess that took me 17 years to get over. <laughs> you know? but, but fortunately... We, the fans and the readers, have a wonderful 500-plus page book all these years later. So if that's all we have out of it, hey, Steve, thank you for putting in the time and the effort and the creativity and putting it actually to paper. Because how many people actually say they're going to write a book and then do it after that? Very few people follow through and finish the thing that they say they're going to do. It's true. That's Let true. alone 580 pages. If I'm correct, yeah. I believe you beat the amount of uh, the amount of pages Dave's first manuscript for Crazy <laughs> from the Heat was. Or well, Darren was that 800 pages before they cut it down to a manageable 350 yeah. or something. <laughs> hey, Steve, before we wrap up, I got to ask this because you did something that I would bet 99% of journalists uh, never did, and that was play guitar with Ed. Oh man! Without giving too much away here, we don't, you know, but. Just give us some thoughts on that and when that was and, and what that was like. The first time was uh, the first time Edward came to my house. I lived in Laurel Canyon. Edward lived in Coldwater, uh, which is basically about 10 minutes away. I actually, I actually clocked it once at 6.1 miles. And um, uh, so the first time he came over for our first in-person interview, um, the second he walks in, and I write about this in the book, uh, you know, he walks, I, I, I was, I was a guitar player. Yeah, so he picks up the guitar and he starts playing. And I, I think at that point, you know, I, I also had a Les Paul and I think I may have also picked one up and it wasn't really a jam. He was probably playing and I was probably noodling in the background. Um, but I mean, there were a couple times, I think maybe three times where, yeah, we actually 
jammed. And, and the, the, you know, one of the times was uh, uh, up at 5150. And Whoa. he, uh, 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 I don't even remember if he called. He may have just driven over to the house, which he would do uh, more times than not. I mean, it happens fairly often. And he says, hey, man, come on, let's go. So, you know, he drives over the house and, and you know, I wasn't sure where we're going. Then I realized, oh, you know, he's up on Mulholland, very famous street. We're going back to his pad. So I go over there. I go on the 5150. And he hands me one of the, his guitars. And he goes, yeah, man, let's jam. I go, yeah, right, Ed. You know, and he <laughs> picks up a bass. So, I, I mean, what do you do? I, you, know, <laughs> you play. So, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, had I been a brilliant guitar player, I would have been scared out of my mind. Uh, you know, as I was, I was just good enough to, you know, not get out of my own way. So, you know, I start playing this little lick, you know, uh, you know, this little lick. I, I was a songwriter and, you know, I had this little lick that I've been messing around with, you know, and, and I, and I tentatively kind of play it thinking, oh, God, don't let him think it's the worst thing he's ever heard. Please, God. You know, I start playing and. You know, he starts doing a couple of things. Goes, yeah, hey, yeah, what's that? Lots of things that I did, you know. And he starts messing around, and 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 beyond beyond how extraordinary and singularly amazing he was as a guitar player, his technique and his tone and and all of that, which we all know about and it's been written about. A thousand times um, was his just the actual ability to conceptualize the music, you know, and, you know, you hear those songs and, 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 you know, you, you really, you know, if you, you listen to them, I mean, I mean, yeah, sometimes it's a verse and a chorus, but a lot of times it's just kind of these verses and then these parts, you know, and ever Edward never thought as a songwriter, just his uncanny ability to hear, you know, these little transi transition chords and little licks, which to, which to my mind were almost as as, as brilliant as, as a solo. I mean, to be able to get inside the guitar that much. I mean, look, there are extraordinary guitar players out there who are average composers. And I mean, shred guys who make their living doing instrumental music. It's like, yeah, they're okay those are good songs you know it, it's not brilliant it's not genre changing but ed ed was an extraordinary songwriter you know and that's what i got from that and then there was another time and i'll be quick i know you got to get, get going he was over at the house and and he pops over and i'm with my buddy ron playing keyboards and we're working on some of my songs and ed comes in and he picks up guitar and he wants to play and him playing these parts i'm telling you man he took this one song that was like, eh, the song was okay. I mean, my changes, I was a I was a good songwriter. I wasn't a great songwriter, but I was a really good songwriter. I understood, you know, harmony and I understood, you know, you know, theory and, and I mean I got all that stuff. But I mean, he just he heard it and instantly goes, Well, man, you know, and I write about this in the book, you do this, and he did that Van Halen thing and he just got it so instantly. I, I, I mean, it was like, oh, my God, I, I couldn't have gotten that in a thousand years. And it wasn't that it was that complex. That's what made it all the more astounding. It was like, 
oh, God, he just got inside that, you know, and that's what made him such a unique person, you know. Um, yeah, yeah it, it was amazing. So, yeah, those were incredible moments. Um, yeah. No doubt. Just amazing, you know, to see him up close, see it that, you know, it's like, well, how good, how good is this guy? You know, how good a songwriter is he? Or has he just come up with these riffs and, you know, it's like, oh, forget it. You know, he, he was amazing. I mean, Edward could have written songs for other artists, but for him, that was never, that was never a part of the equation. Um, uh, you know, he just had no interest in doing that. But uh, yeah. Fascinating pretty, stuff. Pretty one in a million guy, yeah. <laughs> 